Christ, you are our King. We love you and we adore you. We bow down before you and pour out our hearts before you this morning. I pray that you would open my mouth. May I speak words of hope and um, of encouragement. Bind me from saying anything harmful to these, your people. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen. Please be seated. That's not going to go down. If you were here last week, you saw that I'm trying to form a relationship with with this. We're going to try this out. We'll give it another shot. Um, Would you mind getting the doors? Great, thanks. So uh, when Molly and I moved up here, and some of you folks have heard this story before, uh, we moved up here a couple years ago from Alabama, and we actually didn't have a job. So this was about three or four years ago. Uh, Moved up here. We felt called of the Lord to, to come to Minneapolis, to, to Minnesota. But again, we didn't have a job exactly lined up. And if you've been in this situation looking for a job, you know that this can be uh, quite anxiety-producing within you, can't it? Uh, all the fear starts to set in. You start to question your own identity, your own skill set. Uh, you start to question your own calling. Uh, and you're wondering, oh man, is this something that, that truly the Lord brought me into. I don't know. Uh, And it it can be incredibly nerve-rattling, losing a lot of sleep over this and whatnot. Well, restoration is is kind of in a season of waiting right now as well, aren't we? Uh, We just started. We just started our services back in November. We're meeting in this community center here, and we're locking people out of our sanctuary. (laughs) So you can leave leave one of those open, James. So we're such a welcoming, warm church, right? <laughs> right? We've started. You cannot go in here. So there's a season of waiting that goes on here. You know, we come into this space, and we hope that someday we'll have a space of our own. But in the meantime, we come and we gather, and, and hopefully we use our imaginations to see beyond uh, this uh, simple, humble gathering here this morning. And some of you are in seasons of waiting as well. Perhaps you're also waiting for a job or... Maybe you have a job, but you're waiting for that to transition into something else. Maybe in your families, you're, you're waiting for something, the, the arrival of a child, uh, for children to maybe leave the nest. You, know, you might be in various different seasons of, of waiting. Well, our society does an absolutely awful job at preparing people to wait. We're not a very good waiting society, are we? Even in small ways, we'll sit at red lights and, and maybe you're like me and you sit at that red light and you know, your fingers get a little twitchy and you start to reach for your phone and you're just scrolling and you know, checking your phone. And, and like you're there at a red light or maybe at the grocery store you pull out your phone or medical offices or whatnot. We just don't like sitting still. It's not something that we do very well. And that's with little stuff, maybe even with big stuff when we're uh, incredibly stressed, we start to take on these extra projects. We try to do more stuff to fill our lives uh, because, again, we're not great at waiting. So it's no wonder that anxiety among children is actually going up these days, too. It's, it's the highest that it's ever been. Childhood anxiety is super, super high because I think we have all this um, noise that's filling our lives and we're not able to properly calm ourselves down and wait. Well, we would be well served, especially as Christians, to master the art of waiting. It's something that would be very well served at doing. 
So it's u- because it's usually in those seasons of waiting that God wants to speak to us, that God wants to speak to us. So if you've been to our church website, you may have checked out our list of values. We've got five values. They're also listed in the, in the inside cover of your bulletin. Maybe you can recite them. Let's see if I can recite them. I, I hope I can. So reconciliation, hospitality, wholeness, contemplation, and mission. Is that, is that it? Did I nail all of them? Okay, cool. Molly's laughing at me. Well, if you were to look at those five, what do you think is the one that we get the most questions about? And probably the most, um, I almost just said it. Ah! <laughs> but what do you think is the one that we get the most pushback on and the most questions about? It's contemplation. That's something that most doesn't, you know, when you think of a church, you think of what it's supposed to do, especially in our culture today, contemplation isn't exactly a value that you would want to immediately jump to. Sometimes uh, when we presented this uh, to some folks, they were like, isn't that a little intellectual? Like, isn't that a little just, I don't know, presumptuous or something? And we're like, no, it's not. It doesn't have to be an intellectual pursuit. You know, one can be contemplative in their heart, which I hope we'll see here in a few moments. Uh, And sometimes there's a lot of really interesting baggage that comes along with this term, contemplation. Well, like I said, I think that we as Christians need to recover the biblical concept of contemplation. And I think that this is a gift that we, the church, can offer to the world around us. So the psalm that we're looking at today is one that's well-beloved. In fact, many songs, it's been turned into songs um, in, in contemporary music quite a bit. We'll be singing it later on in our service And it's what we'll be looking at today. It's a masterful case study in what God-centered contemplation looks like. Now, of course, this psalm doesn't include everything that contemplation looks like. There's books written about this, classes you can take about this. Uh, I'm sure that by the end of the sermon, you'll be like, oh, you forgot to mention this about contemplation. And this isn't meant to be a comprehensive sermon on contemplation. Uh, But I do think that there's some core things in this psalm that are get me excited, that I'd like to share with you this morning. So you'll see that the psalm is actually laid out in three different sections. Uh, At least I've split it into three sections for us. So you can turn to page 8 in your bulletin. And so you'll see verse 1 through 4 is one section, and then 5 through 8 and 9 through 12. You'll see that I put some paragraph breaks in there. So the first structure I'm going to be referring to as the waiting. The waiting. And then the second is the rally. And then the third section is going to be the charge. So the waiting, the rally, and then the charge. So this scene, or the, the psalm starts with David proclaiming just this beautiful truth. He says here that my, my God alone, for my God alone, my soul waits in salvation. For salvation, in silence, I'm sorry. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. So we get this picture of him quieting himself down sitting before the Lord in absolute silence. He's listening to God. He's not filling the air with words, not here. He's not repeating his requests over and over again. He's simply reflecting on God and God's character. And throughout this, throughout the entire psalm, actually, you'll see words like alone and only. What David is doing through his silence is he's forming this focus on God himself, on God alone, There's nothing else vying for David's attention here. Not his own great army. Not his own cunning or his wise men or even his luck. No, he's focusing only on God. And he's not squeezing in other things. Or he's not finding uh, this. He's not placing his waiting time 
into existing holes in his schedule. You get the, you get the thought here that he is um, carving out of his schedule times to focus only on God. God is his priority here. And look at the descriptors that he uses of God. He calls God his rock, his salvation, his fortress. So in the midst of an unsettling sea of anxiety and fear, he knows that God is solid and unwavering, like a rock that's being battered with waves. And in David's silent solitude, he secures himself to the unmovable and mighty Lord. So it's kind of like the, the, main, or the opening scene of a movie. We've now met our main character. We've met David. He's a good guy. He's got good values here. Perhaps he's a little naive, you know, Perhaps he's a little optimistic, but we're rooting for him. And then the camera shifts, and we see here in verse 3, we start to see the danger that he's in. We start to see the bad guy that he's up against. You get the idea from these verses that someone close to him is attacking him, and we know from David's life that his own sons were raising up to, to, take his, to try to um, take his throne from him. So, but we don't know that exactly. It could be other uh, leaders in his kingdom that are trying to take over from him. Um, but we get the idea that it's someone close. Now, there's two things I want to point out about evil here that we learn. The verse here says, How long will all of you attack a man to battering him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? In other words, David is saying that he's, he's feeling like a waving fence. He's about to fall over, and yet evil is relentless. It just keeps push, punching him and punching him, punching him, as if he's just about to fall over. He's this leaning wall. And so it's giving, what we're seeing here in this psalm is the ruthlessness of evil. Even when I'm down and already crumbling, you continue to hit me, he seems to be saying. Have you ever wondered why bad things kind of happen in a series? In fact, uh, the Sunday after Christmas, uh, you, you all shared a little bit about that, how bad things tend to happen in a series, you know, a house gets struck by lightning, fire, an accident, sickness, you know, you guys shared about that, but yet, I love what you said, you said, still in the midst of this, the Lord is faithful, the Lord is faithful, but maybe you have seasons like that yourself, where just one thing after another just continues to drill you down, and David's t sharing us a little bit about, about what this feels like, it feels like you're a fence about the fall, and yet you continue to be hit. Uh, I once had a, a client of mine uh, in Alabama, and I was explaining to him a, a situation like this, in which someone was giving me an especially difficult time. And he said, in a typical Southern way, and I'm not, I'm not going to attempt to do an Alabama accent, but he was like, you know, Rick, you're never supposed to wrestle with a pig. You know why, right? I'm like, what do you mean wrestle with a pig? He's like, well, one, you're going to get messy, but two, the pig likes it. The pig likes it. I was like, oh my gosh, that's... His name's Lloyd. Doesn't that sound like a comment from Lloyd? You know, it's a great comment. But again, that's what evil is like. You're going to get messy whenever you encounter it. And the, the analogy doesn't quite pick up because it's not like you're choosing to go after this. But after wrestling with it, you're going to notice evil actually likes this, likes to get you messy. It relishes in hurting those who are already wounded. Well, the other thing that we learn about evil in this passage is that evil also likes to go after the strong. Evil also likes to go for the strong. You'll see here that it says they only plan to thrust him down from his high position to take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths and inwardly they curse. So in other words, David is the king. He's sitting on a throne. He's in a high position. Yet evil is arrogant. Evil is envious of David. 
It's not intimidated by him. It still wants to go after him, even though he is high and strong. And this is good for us to hear, because sometimes we think, oh, if only I get that promotion, or if only I I obtain this much more money, or get this raise, or whatever, Uh, if only I have this car, or if only I move into this house, then all of this evil will go away. What David is reminding us here is, don't envy my position. You know, you might be the king of the nation, but you're still going to be pursued after. And evil is very cunning. You'll notice here that when it goes after him in his strong state, that people are blessing him with their mouths, but inwardly they'll curse him. Now, I've got another southern (laughs) example here. I'm just now realizing that, you know, my Alabama things are coming out. I'm not from Alabama originally. You might be wondering that. I'm not. Uh, We lived down there for a long time. But in the south, someone might say to you, oh, bless your heart. Oh, bless your heart. And this is a saying where it's kind of like, I don't know what you just said. You know, they're, they're, they're you know, verbally seeking a blessing over you, but you're also like, are they pitying me in this moment? Are they, you know, are they saying something else to me in this moment? You know, is this an inward curse in a sense? I, I hope not. Surely uh, we've been in those experiences, though, where, pe- where you might be second-guessing what those blessings are. So, uh, in our first stanza, the stanza of waiting, the scene is now set. We know David the good guy. We see the evil ones that are in his midst. And so now let's look and see exactly what he does about his situation. So the second stanza I'm calling the rally, the rally. Now it might be a little confusing because what he does here is he essentially repeats himself. So verses 5 and 6 are kind of basically repeating verses 1 and 2. And so what you could do is you could, um, you could see verses 1 and 2 as David stating that he's waiting alone in silence, then the description of evil, and then again another description of him waiting. And so it's kind of like even the literary structure of the first half of this psalm is surrounding evil. It's like he's reminding himself, the Lord is my rock and my salvation. There's bad things going on around me, yes, but the Lord is my rock and my salvation. The literary term for this is, is an inclusio, and what it means is that um, it's, it's a way of, of pointing our attention to this. And I think what David's trying to do here, even by the literary structure of this psalm, is to say, God is in control. He is my rock. Even though there's a storm going on around me, I am strong and secure in the Lord himself. Now, there are a couple differences, though, that you may have picked up between verses 5 and 6 and 1 and 2. And it's, it's who he's speaking to. The first time he says it, it's just kind of being stated generally. But the second time he's stating it, it's far more focused. He's now speaking to himself. He has these, these imperatives that he's saying to himself. He says, for God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. It's now he's taking these truths that he's learned and he's reminding them, he's speaking them exactly to himself. He's saying, self, wait in silence. And then you'll also notice that phrase from the first one, Uh, at the end of verse 2, when he says, I I shall not be greatly shaken, is now even more resolute in verse 6. He says, I shall not be shaken at all. There's no shaking that's going on here because on God rests my salvation and my glory. And then you'll also notice another difference here is that out of his silence comes the discovery of a new truth. He says, on God alone rests my glory or rests my honor my salvation. He's not basing his reputation on his status, on his accomplishments, um, 
even on his own situation, he's not letting that define himself. He's resting his glory and his honor on no one but the Lord himself. So now you can kind of hear this regained confidence of David that's come to him through his contemplation, through his silence. He's more resolute. He's more sure in himself. And it's as if the tempo of the psalm just picked up a little bit. It's now moving a little bit faster. Well, then his focus changes. He snaps from looking at himself, and now he's calling to his friends. He's calling to the congregation around him. And I love this phrase. This has just been, just been jumping out in my prayers recently since I've been looking at this psalm this month, or this, this week. It says, trust in him at all times, O people. He's calling to them. But then he says, pour out your heart before him. Isn't that just a beautiful phrase? Isn't that just great to, to hear the King David encourage you, encourage his friends to pour out your heart before the Lord? He is a strong and steady rock, and he wants to hear your heart. Now you could think, oh, well, this is, this is, isn't this a little contradictory from what he was saying earlier about waiting in silence? Well, it's not that God never wants to hear what you have to say. No, not at all. In fact, the psalm kind of begins with this feeling of, you know, David has already spoken his peace to the Lord, and now he's waiting. And so now he's offering that first step to those around him. Pour out your heart before the Lord, he says. It's this beautiful image of prayer. All of your hopes and your wishes that you have deep within you, pour them out into the presence of the Lord in prayer. So having now waited, having now rallied himself and rallied his friends, David now turns his attention back to his adversaries. And he charges at them with these words of wisdom. You'll notice there that uh, starting at verse 9, the section that I'm calling the charge, it's as if, um, it, it sort of feels like wisdom literature at this point. It's like the truths that he's been learning in his silence, he now directs and pushes towards those who are his adversaries, those who are fighting against him. So the, he's gained this wisdom from his silence. And here's what he says. Those in low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are but a delusion. Now, this is kind of interesting. This, this phrase is actually supposed to be encompassing of all humankind, which is kind of like, well, David, this isn't very flattering of us. Uh, what, what do you mean we're all but a, a breath? And that those especially in high estate are of a delusion. Well, what David is pointing at is just how temporal our lives are. He says, you know, uh, we are here, you know, but, uh, but merely a moment. Uh, elsewhere uh, in, the, in the Bible, it says that we're just like, like grass that, that sprouts in the morning, but then withers by the afternoon. And it's good to be reminded of this, especially in comparison to the adversaries that he's seeing. He says that, to get, that in the balances, they go up. So imagine uh, the balances of justice here that God has. And he's putting the, the haughty and his adversaries on one side, and they're being measured in their righteousness, and the righteousness just totally pulls the weight of that balance up, showing that those uh, who are being weighed are false and empty and without substance. They're hollow. <clears throat> I, should, I should stick to my notes more because I keep losing my, pit, my place. I'm, just, I'm so excited, right? <laughs> so this, this word here, uh, is, I think it's really interesting, this word here for uh, they're but a breath or... Um, that those of low estate are but a breath. This is the same word in Ecclesiastes that's translated as vanity, right? So again, like we're merely temporary. We're just vanity. So set not, set not your heart on riches, he says. So what he's saying here is that the things of men, the things that we seek after, the things that we attain, 
You know, what do we seek after? We seek after power and riches and glory and all those things compared to the righteousness of God are nothing. They rise up. And so he's restating this again by saying, you know, even the riches that you seek after, if they're obtained legally or illegally, they're nothing but vanity. He says, look, I'm a king. I still have issues. Don't think that the accumulation of wealth is going to be solving anything. Uh, So don't seek after that at all. Um, You may have seen this article kind of flip through your headlines or whatever um, in the past couple weeks or so. And uh, there's this, one of the founders of Facebook was kind of bemoaning Facebook. And he was speaking to a group of Sanford students. And he was kind of encouraging them, saying, you know, you need to give this stuff up. It's addicting and it's, it's awful and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I, I agree with that. As a, as a tech guy, I can talk a little bit about Facebook and it's, you know, addictive things. I, I'm not going to go off on it as much today. We can talk over coffee about that. But anyway, what he was saying is they were asking him, so, you know, what sort of things should we be building as the next entrepreneurs, as the next um, inventors and whatnot? What sort of things should we be building? And he's like, well, build things that will get you the most money. And he's like, get the money. Go after the money. And he says it over and over. And then he starts flavoring get the money with some other language that I can't say here in church. And he's just encouraging these students, go after the money. And the reason for doing this is so that you can influence others with whatever worldview that you have. Because according to him, money is power. And you want to be able to make a difference. You want to be able to change the world to obtain as much money as you possibly can. And then he just kind of has this throwaway statement where he's like, you know, hopefully in doing so you won't be, you know, taking advantage of other people. I'm like, whoa, whoa, what did you just say, hopefully? You know, it's kind of like he's giving himself away here. And it reminds me of this psalm. In which, in which David is saying, don't put your trust in extortion. Don't put vain hopes on robbing. And then the person who's interviewing this guy, she's like, well, how do you protect yourself from being corrupted? Because you can kind of hear the excitement that's just boiling up within him. And it was such a great question. She was like, well, how do you protect yourself from being corrupted from all of this? And he didn't have an answer. He was like, well, it's really hard. It's really hard. And he just stated that over a couple times. And, okay, yeah, so he says that. You know, what society is trying to tell us is that what you make, or what you you are what you make. You You are defined by what you are able to control. And here David is telling us something totally different. He's telling us that it's simply vanity to place your hope in these kinds of things. If riches increase, he's like, even if you obtain them through legal means, still do not place your hope on these things. Moth and rust corrode. Empires and corporations rise and fall. But the word of the Lord, his truth, his love, his might, and his life, those endure forever. So again, we've, we've seen David waiting in silence. We've seen the confidence that comes within him to where he can um, speak over, where he can um, speak into those who are threatening him. And then we move into the last part of this psalm. There in verse 11, he says, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. So he's speaking of this oracle that has come to him. Now, when he's saying twice I've heard this, it's kind of as if when Jesus says truly, truly, you know, what he's saying here is what I'm about to say is of immense importance. So again, these are truths that are no doubt obtained through his contemplation 
his waiting and his silence. And what does he say? Well, he says that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love for you will render to a man according to his work. In the face of false adversity, he rests on God's power. In the face of transactional relationships and betrayal, he rests on God's steadfast love. I'm going to come back to those two traits in a moment here. But let's jump back down to the end of verse 12, where it says that, he, that God will rend to man according to his work. What David is proclaiming here is that God will even the scales of justice. He will make all things good and fair. David's professing that even though he doesn't know for certain how his particular situation will pan out, he knows that God, in the end, will make all things right and good. So as I was looking over this passage and talking about it with Molly, you know, one of the things that kind of struck me was how the Lord's power and his steadfast love are both used here at the end. And that's, that's kind of unusual. And so I uh, did some research, looked into those things, and I was like, where else in scriptures do we see the power of God and the steadfast love of God used together in this kind of way? And it's, it's pretty rare. It's not something that you can see all that easily. You'll see the words power and love together. Uh, for example, in 2 Timothy, uh, Paul tells us that we haven't been given a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. But again, those are times in which those words are used of us, not of God. What I wanted to know is when do God's people talk of his power and his steadfast love together? And one of the places that I found... I think this is, maybe you can find others. I'd love to hear them if you do. But it appears in Numbers 14. So this is a moment when Moses is going before the Lord because the Lord is, he's upset. He's upset with his people because they just keep grumbling and grumbling. And what Moses does in the midst of God's anger, he approaches the Lord and this is what he says to them. He says, please Lord, let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised saying that the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have been forgiving them from Egypt up until now. So here in this instance, he's coming forth before the Lord and he's leaning on his power and he's leaning on God's love. Both of those things. In fact, those themes come up, they're implied definitely in the reading that we heard from Jonah this morning. Because I think where we see God's power and love most intimately come together is in the act of forgiveness. In the act of forgiveness. And that's exactly what was going on in Jonah. That's what we saw in our gospel passage. Are those love, and, or the power and the steadfast love coming together. And where else do we most strongly see these two things coming together than the cross of Christ, Right? See, this is where God, in his power, became man. And this is where God, out of his love for the human race, took on our hypocrisy, our own extortion, our own sin and betrayal, and he laid it upon him, his pure and sinful, sinless self. And in his power, he defeated death itself by overcoming the grave and rising again to life, breaking off the chains of sin and darkness. And he shows us his love by sending his spirit within us, and through faith in him, extending the right to be called children of God. So that now you and I, no matter where we are in life, no matter what we're waiting for, we can cast our burdens upon him. He is our rock 
and our salvation. So, people of God, trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart before him, for God is our refuge. Take shelter in the cross where power and love meet. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.